hello and welcome to another ICM Next Collaboration um, podcast. My name is Laura Borgschen and I'm a Next Comedy member from the Technical University of Munich, Germany. Um, today it is my pleasure to talk uh, with Professor David Menon about his recent paper in ICM. Uh, he is a professor of anesthesia and head of the division of anesthesia at the University of Cambridge. He's one of two coordinators of the Centre TBI project, a 30 million euro multi-centre study of precision medicine and comparative effectiveness research in traumatic brain injury. Hello, David. Hi, Professor Menon. Hi, hi Laura. <laughs> hi. So um, the title of the paper is Management of Arterial Partial Pressure of Carbon Dioxide in the First Week After Traumatic Brain Injury, results from the Centre TBI study. Uh, so would you, um, would you tell the listeners what it's about? Yeah, so we've had um, experimental studies in small numbers of patients <laughs> for a long time, suggesting that patients who are treated for raised intracranial pressure with hyperventilation can sometimes experience ischemia. And if hyperventilation is used in patients who do not have particularly high ICPs, then the risks of uh, brain ischemia are even more. But all of these have uh, been associated with changes in physiology rather than changes in outcome. The physiology has been measured in different ways using microdialysis, uh, cerebral blood flow measurement, uh, triple oxygen PET to demonstrate ischemia. But there's been, there has been no assessment of what hyperventilation does to outcome. Our uh, hypothesis was that when hyperventilation is used appropriately in patients with raised intracranial pressure, it may be beneficial, but when it's used in patients without raised intracranial pressure, it might be harmful. So in the center TBI study, we undertook a comparative effectiveness research analysis where we took all the patients who were in the ICU and were being treated for uh, raised intracranial pressure or being monitored for intracranial pressure elevations and uh, examined how much hyperventilation was being used, what levels of hyperventilation were being used, and what the association was with outcome. The thought that we had was if the comparative effectiveness research analysis, again, strongly suggested harm from hyperventilation, we could recommend caution, even more caution, with a greater degree of certainty. If, on the other hand, it was completely safe, then we would have to think again. Uh, what we found in the population of patients was um, that hyperventilation was pretty widely used across European centers. And in our total cohort of about 1,100 patients, uh, it was used both in patients with and without raised intracranial pressure. On the whole, however, and when patients had intracranial pressure monitoring, it was being used more often and with more profound hyperventilation, suggesting that there it was in response to raised intracranial pressure. Why it was being used in patients without raised intracranial pressure was very unclear. There was a huge amount of heterogeneity across centers. Some centers were using it much more and some centers using it much less. And uh, further, the, the use of hyperventilation in the absence of intracranial pressure monitoring was also highly variable across centers. When we looked at the association with outcome, we could find no association with outcome, either harmful or, or uh, beneficial. So we were left with uh, a hypothesis that was unproven uh, or uh, 
completely refuted, uh, suggesting that the use of hyperventilation was not always rational in centers, but there wasn't a clear signal for benefit or harm. To our mind, this provides uh, a strong case for undertaking a randomized control study, uh, which can be quite pragmatic in order for us to understand what the benefits and harms of the intervention might be. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Um, so from your, you've done extensive research on neurocritical care and on hyperventilation. And as you said, you found that hyperventilation causes uh, cerebral ischemia. And um, now in the current paper, uh, you showed that hyperventilation did not worsen outcome. So what role do you think ischemia and arterial partial pressure of carbon dioxide play uh, in, uh, with respect to uh, secondary brain injury? So we have relatively good evidence that ischemia is associated with worse outcomes or, because uh, for a long time, post-mortem studies from um, Glasgow and from uh, centers in the US have shown that patients dying of, of traumatic brain injury often show evidence of cerebral ischemia. Mm -hmm. Our own studies using PET have shown that there is ischemia in the early days after TBI, probably maximal in the first 24 hours. And the extent of such ischemia as defined using positron emission tomography is associated with the outcome. Indeed, even before we showed this, um, Garrett Buma and colleagues have used uh, AV differences in um, oxygen content, arterial jugular differences, to show that ischemia does occur in the first 24 hours or so and is associated with outcome. The question then is what, what happens with hyperventilation? We've shown conclusively that when we use hyperventilation in patients who don't have marked elevations in intracranial pressure, this is associated with an increase in the amount of brain that is critically ischemic, defined either by cerebral blood flow thresholds or by oxygen extraction fraction thresholds. Just to clarify, what that means is that when we use hyperventilation in patients where the ICP is not much more than 20 or below 20, what we find is in general, cerebral blood flow is reduced and the amount of oxygen that the brain has to extract to maintain oxygen metabolism is increased. And indeed in some settings, there is a reduction in oxygen metabolism in the brain, suggesting that there is not enough being delivered to maintain oxygen metabolism. So one would expect that under those circumstances, the impact of outcome. However, because the PET studies have been conducted in patients who are relatively stable, we don't know what the impact of this is in the patients who've got raised intracranial pressure. Clearly, it may be reducing cerebral blood flow, but in patients who've got a very high intracranial pressure, the reduction in vascular caliber associated with hyperventilation will also reduce cerebral blood volume and can reduce intracranial pressure substantially. And where a high intracranial pressure is contributing to critically low cerebral perfusion pressure, the hyperventilation may result in improved oxygen delivery to the brain. So clearly there's a potential for benefit in the patients who've got very high intracranial pressures. We don't know where the threshold between benefit and harm lies. 
And it may be that in the patients that were being monitored, intracranial pressure was high and hyperventilation was being used appropriately. And in the patients who were not being monitored, hyperventilation was used because there were imaging or other evidence of raised intracranial pressure. And again, it was being used appropriately, but we don't know. It is also possible that in patients where hyperventilation was not used, other interventions were being used more to control intracranial pressure. So while we know that hyperventilation has harmful effects in terms of increasing ischemia, not using hyperventilation may cause rises in intracranial pressure. And that will require other interventions, perhaps more deep sedation, maybe hypothermia, maybe excessive use of osmotic agents such as hypertonic saline and mannitol. And all of these have their own effects uh, and side effects. So it is possible that uh, hyperventilation may have side effects, but the alternative therapies have side effects of their own and these balance each other out. Given that this is such a finely balanced um, equation, we have to know uh, what level of CO2 these patients were being hyperventilated to, what the intracranial pressure was, and where the risk-benefit ratio improves so that it's worthwhile using hyperventilation. And that requires the magic of randomization, so we do need a randomized trial to demonstrate it. Yeah, exciting. Um, looking very much forward to reading uh, the paper <laughs> when the uh, RCT is published and all done. So. Um, Speaking of heterogeneity and um, <clears throat> looking at um, evidence and literature on um, TBI and neurocritical care. So um, evidence suggests not to follow a one size fits all approach in TBI. Um, so is there anything you would recommend to young intensivists? Um, so the first thing I would say is that uh, we don't know, there's an awful lot we don't know about the management of raised intracranial pressure in patients with traumatic brain injury. But one thing is clear, uh, many of the therapies we use for intracranial hypertension have side effects of their own. In fact, all of them do. So the use of sedative drugs we know in general critical care is associated with worse outcomes, particularly if very high doses are used using vasopressors and volume loading can cause um, cardiovascular dysfunction, pulmonary fluid overload. Uh, and in uh, Claudia Robertson's classical paper was associated with worse outcomes. We know that using very high doses of osmotic diuretic runs the, the risk of uh, causing renal dysfunction. And at the, after an initial rise in, in plasma sodium or plasma osmolality, if there's a very rapid reduction, you can get rebound cerebral edema. We know that hypothermia, when used uh, inappropriately, can cause harm. And similarly, decompressive craniectomy may result in outcomes that are undesirable. But we still have to manage patients because uh, our evidence uh, is limited. And I think it's important to use treatments only when they're needed. So the standard management of the patient who comes in with modestly elevated intracranial hypertension uh, should be as gentle as possible, relatively low doses of sedation, um, 
not using uh, deep hypothermia, just trying to maintain normal thermia, using osmotic agents as needed, but not excessively. And when it comes to hyperventilation, we know from our PET studies that so long as the PaCO2 is above 4.5 kPa, generally the ischemic harm is less. Once the CO2 drops below 4 kPa, we know that pretty much every patient gets significant areas of ischemia. So our own practice when it comes to hyperventilation is to use modest levels of hyperventilation for modest levels of intracranial hypertension, keep the CO2s in patients with normal intracranial pressure normal. And normal means 5 to 5.3 kPa, where the ICP is elevated a little bit, then we use a little bit of hyperventilation with CO2s in the range of about 4.5 to 5 kPa. And we don't use hyperventilation below 4 kPa unless the ICP is significantly elevated, well above 25. And even then, only when we're monitoring brain tissue uh, oxygenation using either brain tissue PO2 or using jugular bulb oximetry. Uh, nowadays, we very rarely use jugular bulb oximetry. We pretty much always use brain tissue PO2 because it's easier to use at the bedside. And I think you need to think about the more aggressive therapies such as profound hyperventilation down to below 4 kPa, decompressive craniectomy, barbiturate coma, hypothermia below 35 to 36 degrees as extreme physiological interventions. They're not curative treatments for TBI. They're just controlling physiology. And the way I talk to our trainees is to make them think about this the same way as we think about ECMO for severe respiratory failure. We know that ECMO will save lives in patients with very severe respiratory failure when physiology can't be maintained by lung protective ventilation, high levels of PEEP and a high FiO2. However, we don't use it in patients who've got less severe respiratory failure. We don't use it in patients with a signal diagnosis. Just because someone comes in with influenza or ARDS, we don't use it. We don't use it to prevent respiratory failure. It is purely to stabilize physiology when it's very severely deranged. And we should think about decompressive craniectomy, profound hyperventilation, barbiturate coma, and uh, deep hypothermia, like ECMO in the context of raised intracranial pressure. So we use it only when it's absolutely needed because that is our best chance of using it in a way that benefits patient outcomes. Thank you very much. Um, Thanks, Laura. For your time and those interesting and valuable insights and TBI. I hope you've all enjoyed this ICM and next collaboration podcast and hope to see you again next time. Thank you.